old, I had to do some calculations, wondering if I was going through a midlife crisis. Even at this relatively young age, all of the classic symptoms were there. I was fattening up, balding, and feeling like I needed to change the direction of my life. I also made a rash and entirely unnecessary purchase in an attempt to quell these feelings. That large purchase turned out to be a new shirt and some socks. Those socks, however, are just comfy enough to change my life perspective. Realizing, of course, that I was going through my own midlife crisis at 28, and that in turn meant that I would suffer a premature death at 56, only made me more depressed and heightened the symptoms I was suffering from. It was a vicious cycle. One thing that usually accompanies a diagnosed midlife crisis is a return to a lifestyle and activities that were enjoyed more in one's younger years. For many, this could be reckless drinking, as when one was in college, or buying a new car, as one might after college, or futilely trying to find a career, as one might have done immediately after buying a new car after college. For me, though, college had only been a few years ago, so I found myself returning to my preteen and early teen years and embracing many of the habits I enjoyed then. Of course, as a teen, I actually enjoyed very little. I was, as I still am to some degree, socially awkward. I somehow managed to avoid both being excessively picked on by the bullies and being unilaterally accepted by the popular kids. I was a nerd, but one who kept to himself. I wrote poetry as lovelorn nerds are prone to do. I let my budding creativity bloom on the thin metal wall of my locker, which I usually shared with some other socially inept dweeb. In general, the object of my poetry, drawings, and daytime soap opera plots was about a single person. That person's name is one Miss Nicole Kidman. It is hard to describe the level of infatuation that I had with the actress Nicole Kidman. It is obviously different than the freaky stuff that a stalker would do, I didn't have the courage to sit outside her house on cold winter nights, though it sounded like a wonderful idea. No, mine was an affection that was both pure and unadulterated. And though it makes me sound like a severely disturbed youth, I don't regret a thing. I think it all started when I watched the epic movie Far and Away. It may have been the first time that I saw her. I curled up on the couch in my parents' unusually cold basement and watched as her beauty unfolded before my eyes on the choppy VHS. In later years, and after several revisits to the film, I found Nicole Kidman's character to be entirely unrelatable and undesirable. She is a mean-spirited brat who never really corrects that character flaw. I sincerely believe that while I was watching Shannon Christie play horrifyingly modern piano music, or nurse a wooden bowl donning vigilante, or pluck chickens, or change dresses at such a unique angle as to just avoid seeing any nipplage. I wasn't falling in love with the character. I was falling for the actress. I know that though she lived most of her life in Melbourne, she was actually born in Hawaii. I know that she's five feet, ten and a half inches tall, which makes her a good inch and a half taller than me and three and a half inches taller than Tom Cruise, about the size of two Vienna sausages. I know that she is left-handed. I know that she's scared of butterflies. 
I sat at my family's computer for hours as I slowly downloaded bar by bar images of the actress. I then printed these off and wallpapered my room with Nicole's pixelated image. I convinced people to give me money for lunch at school, and then I saved that money to go to the movie buffs up the street and rent any Nicole movies that were available. I watched everything from BMX Bandits 2 to Die For. Yes, movie buffs would let me, a 15-year-old kid, rent several R-rated films. Every time I cracked open the clear cover for these videos and popped it into the VCR, I knew that my heart would be held captive for at least another 90 minutes. I began collecting magazines with Nicole on the cover. It took a lot of courage for me to go through the cashier at Reams to buy an issue of Cosmopolitan, but since the cashier was usually a few grades younger than myself, he was too nervous to say anything. I soon had a stack of female interest magazines in my room that would make any parent or religious leader concerned. There was usually only a six-page story regarding the actress, but I pored over every word. The photos generally featured Nicole in a slimming single-color dress against a fantastical backdrop, either leaning against an oddly placed column or staring upside down at the camera while lying prostrate over a field of poppies. I memorized the words to the columns and each fine detail of the pictures. The story in these magazines usually focused on Nicole as an up-and-coming actress who was desperately trying to break free from the bonds of being known as Mrs. Tom Cruise. As bizarre as that sounds today, with the couple being estranged and re-wed, Nicole to an unshaven singer-slash-crocodile enthusiast, and Tom, at one point, to the one woman from Muppets in Space with marginal susceptibility for religious brainwashing. The Cruise-Kidman dilemma was very real and very controversial. I had a contempt for Tom Cruise that is rivaled only by my hatred for those little slices of ginger that come with sushi, and my genuine animosity towards the term guesstimate. I plotted ways that I could convince Nicole that I, a 15-year-old boy, was better for her than Tom could ever be. My resolve was to write a book. In said book, which I would appropriately entitle Why I Love Nicole Kidman, I would proffer my reasons to the reading public, which were sure to get the attention of the actress herself. Instead of just creating a list of reasons, I started to write a semi-fictional story about a little boy's obsession for the starlet of his dreams. I still remember incorporating into this a dream sequence that I had actually had, it had always been my dream to kiss a girl under the Eiffel Tower. In my little adolescent mind, there would be nothing so sickeningly romantic than something like that. Since I was naturally in love with Nicole Kidman at this time, I substituted her into my dream. I took my first trip to Paris in the summer of 1995. Though I would be traveling to Europe when one of the most anticipated movie events of all time, Batman Forever, would be coming to theaters, starring Nicole Kidman as a super sexy damsel in distress, Dr. Chase Meridian. I knew it would be worth it. In my mind, I had created an elaborate scenario, which would go straight into the pages of my book once realized. I left for France in the middle of June. Nicole Kidman's 28th birthday was on June 20th. What better gift could an overcompensating husband like Tom Cruise give his wife than a whirlwind trip to the City of Lights? As I flew to Paris, this was all I could think about. I kept looking over my shoulder for a five foot, 10 and a half inch tall Aussie in Charles de Gaulle Airport. As I visited the Opera House, the Arc de Triomphe in Sacré-Cœur, 
I looked for her red hair poking over the top of the crowd of Japanese tourists. At famed museums, I marveled at the countless paintings and chiseled sculptures adorning the aisles and saw the ancient and timeless beauty in each piece that mirrored what I saw in Nicole. We ended our tour with a nighttime visit to the Eiffel Tower. The date was June 20th. I was so sure that Nicole Kidman would be there that I went away from our tour group for a moment to sit on one of the benches that rest underneath the tower. I put my head in my hands and prayed vain prayers to St. Isidore, the patron saint of sheep herders, good land deals, and teenage stalkers. Every crumble of gravel that I heard under the massive steel edifice served to reignite my hopes. She would come to me, approach slowly, and like an Amazonian goddess, she would take my hand. She would have to bend down ever so slightly to reach my quivering lips, and with the fleshy contact of her lips with mine, my life would be complete at the tender age of 15. I eventually walked back to the bus with my hotel group, feeling entirely dejected. I wasn't so separated from reality that I believed my fantasy would actually happen, but there was a continual glimmer of hope that my poetic brain could conjure up the miracle of my dreams. I even thought that maybe it had, but that I had happened to miss her in the crowd or that she exited the limo just as I stepped foot onto the bus. I left Paris and returned to my regular life and my crippling want of Nicole Kidman to comfort me. About a year later, my father, mysteriously supportive of my fascination, went with me to see the newest Nicole Kidman movie, The Portrait of a Lady. In preparation for the film, I managed to plow through my first Henry James novel. By the end of it, I was not sure what I had just done and where two weeks of my life went. I do consider that a good preparation for my tenure as an English major, where I blanked out in the process of reading plenty of thick 19th and early 20th century lit. We went to the theater and were part of the 54 viewers that the film showed for worldwide. My father, bless his heart, fell asleep somewhere between the second and third minute. I could not tell you one single part of the plotline for this film, but I could tell you that I was completely enthralled. The one concern that I had with The Portrait of a Lady at the time was that I knew, from reading volumes of reviews, that there would be some nudity involved. I had long held the belief that I did not want to see any representation of a nude Nicole Kidman until I was drawing my last breath on my deathbed. I jokingly said that it was because there would be nothing else to live for, in truth, I had such a sacrosanct reverence for Nicole that I couldn't imagine sullying that by viewing her nakedness. Luckily, before this movie, there was no other option as I held with pride the fact that Nicole had never revealed herself in front of the cameras. That was until now. To this day, I couldn't tell you what exactly was revealed. There was some build-up to it, so I was able to adequately shield my eyes before the glorious fire, like one that would emerge from the open dark of the covenant, came and melted my face off. In the beginning of the year 1999, news broke that Practical Magic Star, a title that still makes me wince, Nicole Kidman was scheduled to appear in a stage drama called The Blue Room, which would run for a month in a London theater. I had recently turned 18 and I was proud of my newly acquired title of adult. I began making plans to fly, on an airplane, 
by myself to London for the sole purpose of attending the stage production. I made all of the necessary arrangements, including the hostel I would stay at and the cost of airfare. If I took all of the money I had earned as a grocery store dairy boy out of savings, I would have just enough. I could handle missing a week of school. I would just have to present the idea to my parents. I did so and was shocked that they did not put up much resistance at all to my request. They both let me know of their disapproval, but they also both understood how my obsession was a kinder, gentler version of stalking. They said that I could make my own decisions, and so that I did. Just before I was about to buy the airfare for a round-trip ticket to England, I read a report on the official-slash-non-official Nicole Kidman fan club webzine that the actress would be appearing in a scene of the Blue Room involving full-frontal nudity. Nudity, for the sake of art, is one thing, but when the descriptor of full-frontal is put on it, it's just dirty for dirtiness' sake. I canceled my plans to attend the show, much to the relief of my parents and my college fund. It was with that simple report that the dream and obsessions that I had harbored for so long began coming to an end. I eventually took down the pictures of Nicole in my room and on my locker. I hid the magazines at the back of the bookshelf. I canceled my Webzine electronic mailing list subscription. In the summer, Nicole Kidman would appear in a movie that was hailed to be her amazing breakthrough performance, Stanley Kubrick's romping sex fest Eyes Wide Shut. Sticking religiously, though only slightly out of actual religious reasoning, to my no-naked philosophy, I did not go see the movie. In it, Nicole Kidman appears opposite her husband Tom Cruise as the wife in a burned-out marriage. In real life, the marriage of the two actors was coming to a bitter end. My pleas to heaven had been heard, only a few years too late. Nicole Kidman was single again. I was above the age of being considered a victim of statutory rape. The stars seemed to be aligned. Only the stars I had in my eyes for years were slowly dimming. I have enjoyed watching Nicole Kidman over the years in her variety of roles. It is the kind of satisfaction that one might get in seeing the success of an ex years after their departure from one another. I made no real effort to attend her movies, but I usually would end up renting them and watching them by myself in the late hours of the night. I would sometimes give a second look, but never purchase the many magazines in which she appeared on the cover over these several years. She's since starred as a sing-songy penguin in an animated feature, as a robotic wife, and even went on to win an Oscar by putting on a fake nose and drowning herself in the ocean, all nerdy and poetic-like. When I began writing this story, I was as old then as Nicole would have been if we happened to meet that fateful day in Paris. So many things have changed in the course of both of our lives. In March of 2003, I made my way back to the City of Lights, only this time with my best friend in the world. Miranda and I walked together, hand in hand, through the crumbling gravel underneath the Eiffel Tower. I held her hand tightly, directly underneath the arching beams, and it seemed like we were the only people in the world in the chilly night air of early spring. I kissed Miranda after bending down slightly so my quivering lips could reach hers. I then whispered in her ear, thank you for making my dream come true. I brought out the ring from my pocket, kneeled down and proposed. We've lived happily together for several years now, and I can think of no one that I would rather spend my life with. 
As a young, innocent, and hormone-fueled teenager, I searched for the answers as to exactly why I loved Nicole Kidman. I was willing to carry that search to a different continent at least twice. I bore all of the symptoms that if my own children ever displayed, I would admit them immediately to psychiatric care. I claimed that I wanted the world to know when I was actually just trying to find out for myself. Now, nearly half of my life later, and slowly, after writing this, recovering from a midlife crisis, I believe that I know the answer. She was talented and beautiful and charming and gorgeous, all that's true, but it's not the answer. I loved Nicole Kidman so much so that I could appreciate what true love would be when I found it later on in life. I love my wife, even though she can't magically wiggle her nose or have a job as a UN interpreter or even haunt the living along with our ghost children. What we have is something that a movie script can't write. But if they ever do, I think Keith Urban could play my part very well.